What do you think those seats on the left hand and right hand of Jesus are like? What do they look like? What sort of seats might they be? In this gospel lesson, James and John approach Jesus and ask him to let them have those seats on either side of him. When Jesus comes into his glory, what kind of seats might they be? Are they palatial thrones out of a medieval throne room, a king's court? Maybe they're benches. Jesus said something about the apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe they're a bench worthy of a judge. Or maybe they're the places of honor at an enormous banquet table with too many seats to be counted. I wonder what those seats look like. Jesus lets James and John know that those seats, however, aren't appointed for them. And it makes me wonder who it is that gets to sit in those seats. What sort of person gets to occupy the place of honor next to Jesus in Jesus' glory? Maybe it's another disciple like Peter. Or maybe it's Jesus' mother, Mary. Maybe it's a saint that hadn't been born yet. Maybe it's a saint that hasn't even been born yet. I wonder who gets to sit in that seat. Jesus lets us know that James and John are not only willing, but that they will indeed drink the cup and be baptized with the same baptism that Jesus will endure. But still those seats aren't for them. It makes me wonder what kind of qualifications a saint would have to have to earn a seat like that. But then again, maybe that's the wrong approach altogether. Maybe that's not how the people who will occupy those seats is decided at all. Maybe it's a popularity contest. Maybe, maybe God will let us vote, all of us vote, and decide which saints we want to see, kind of like a great reality TV show made for heaven. We'd put, I don't know, Francis or Patrick or Julian or Joan on those seats. Or maybe if you're like me, you think of God's reign as being a perfectly ordered place, the kind of place where there would be a rota, a schedule of who would occupy that seat so that as eternity stretches on forever, all of us would have an infinite number of opportunities to sit in that place of honor and feel what that's like. I enjoy thinking about things like that. I'm not sure it really matters, though, at least not as much as what James and John were thinking. What were they thinking? What did they have in their mind? What were they imagining when they came up to Jesus and said, hey buddy, hey teacher, hey rabbi, may we sit with you? It's more important for us to imagine that, I think. Teacher, we want you to do whatever it is we ask of you, they said, and, and Jesus didn't have any children of his own but he'd probably been in ministry long enough to know what to do when you get a question like that, which is to pivot right back to the person asking it. So Jesus says, what do you have in mind? What are you asking me to do, right? But when James and John share their request with Jesus, let us sit one at your right and one at your left. The first thing Jesus says to them is, you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. It must have been galling for Jesus to hear his disciples request those places of honor. They were on their way to Jerusalem. They were walking the road. 
Just moments before this request is uttered, Jesus had turned around to his disciples, all 12, and explained to them why they were going to Jerusalem in the first place. Because when they arrived in the holy city, the religious leaders of Jesus' people would reject him and hand him over to the Roman authorities to be mocked and tortured and executed. Literally, Jesus was walking the road that led to his suffering and death, and all James and John can think about is getting the seat of honor when Jesus comes into his glory. What sort of glory? What were they thinking? It's easy to criticize James and John. They're the bold ones in this moment, but we shouldn't lay all the blame at their feet. Notice what the other ten disciples, how they react. They were angry, resentful, indignant, enraged, the word means to us, enraged when they heard of James and John's request. Why were they so upset? Is it because they were embarrassed by their colleagues who could be so self-centered, so obtuse as to grasp at power in this moment of tenderness? Or was it because they were jealous that the brothers Zebedee had thought to ask before they got a chance. Either way, the fact that their reaction is anger lets us know that they didn't know any better than James and John what was happening around them. They were no more enlightened. None of the disciples understood what was lying ahead of them in Jerusalem. The problem isn't that the disciples were bad listeners. This was the third time Jesus had predicted his death. Jesus wanted to be sure that they had heard what he had said. The problem wasn't one of listening, it was comprehension. They didn't understand what Jesus' death represented. They heard Jesus predict his death and begin to ask about what's on the other side of it, as if the death itself, the suffering and the struggle, or like a bump on the road, some moment of struggle in the midst of a pursuit of a greater end, a greater glory, kind of like our children who do homework before a big exam, or musicians who practice hour after hour before a big performance, or a football team that struggles through two-a-days in the summer heat because they know that when the season comes around, that work will bear fruit. It's as if James and John and the disciples are thinking of Jesus' death, even though it stands ahead of them, as just another step on the way. They have no idea what they're asking. Teacher, let us sit one at your right and one at your left when you come into your glory. Boys, you have no idea what you are asking. Whoever wishes to be great among you must become your servant. Whoever would be first among you must become slave to all. Not pretend to be slave, not act the part of a servant, not tie the towel around your waist once a year in some ritual expression of servanthood that is incongruous with the rest of your life, but to be least of all, last of all, slave of all. And what does that look like? What does Jesus have in mind? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We accept the path that leads to struggle, 
to servanthood, to suffering, to loss, not because we expect that there is glory on the other side, but because that path, the very struggle we engage, is itself God's glory. What are those seats on the right and left of Jesus look like in his glory? What, who, is, who are those seats reserved for? Is it not the bandits who are crucified, one on his left and one on his right? Is Jesus' glory not revealed in his suffering? Is his crown not made of thorns? Aren't the criminals the ones who become the markers of God's limitless love? The righteous ones don't need someone to remind them that God loves them. The wealthy, the powerful, they don't need a savior to come and turn the world upside down so that the world might see that they are the blessed ones. It's the criminals, it's the bandits, it's the rejects, it's the unlovable ones among us whose place reserved in God's reign is finally revealed when Jesus comes into his glory. And if we will see that glory, if we will share that glory, we must love the world the way that God has loved the world. Not because the world will love God back. Not because we are worthy of that love, but because that's who God is. God is love. God's love is the first love. God's love is the first cause, the energy that breathes life and animation into the universe. And love like that, love that accepts no qualification, always takes the lowest place. Because that love must look upon all and behold them with honor. Even the lowliest of the low is held in love by God. Is that how we see the world? When we look for those who will be seated with Christ in his glory, where are we looking? Are we looking beneath us to those who are desperate for our love? Are we looking beside us to those who love us back? Or are we, like Christ, taking the form of servant? taking the lowest place so that everyone is one we look up to in esteem and love, even the most unlovable among us. Only then, only when we love as we have been loved, can we share in the glory of Christ, a glory that shines among us, that warms us, that warms this world, that gives hope to hopeless places, that fills us anew. May that be our light. May that be our love.